everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for listening. If you've uh, subscribed to us or given us a review on iTunes, I appreciate that. Thanks for doing that as well. Um, Thanks for the feedback on the Facebook page um, and the different things that you emailed to me and tweeted to me and all that sort of thing. Uh, I was thinking about it over the course of the past week. Uh, One of the things I enjoy the most about the the podcast is not doing the research and recording the podcast necessarily, even though I do enjoy that aspect of it, Um, but it's actually interacting with people and and fielding questions and and thinking more deeply about some of the things that we talk about on the podcast after listeners have actually given me feedback. So thank you for all of that. I really do appreciate that. if you disagree with me, that's fantastic. Um, I come from the world of academia, and so disagreement is is something that I'm perfectly comfortable with. Um, and, and I very much see it not as a challenge to my authority, but, but rather a challenge to my intellect that um, will force me to think more deeply on issues. And so thank you for that, um, and please keep giving me that feedback. We're going to talk about some of the feedback and some of the specific things that people said here um, in just a few minutes um, about Strava and a couple of other pieces of technology. Um, and today we're going to talk more about technologies. It's kind of technology part two, because as I continued to reflect based upon the feedback that people gave me, there was more I wanted to say. Um, and so that's one of the reasons also why here it's been only a week and and, and we're coming out with a, yet another episode of the podcast here. Um, as I was also po- focusing on the podcast, reflecting on the podcast from, from last week, I was thinking about uh, what news I wanted to talk about from the world of endurance sports. And As I mentioned last week, there was this big gap between the last episode that we did and then the one before that. There was a few months went by during which uh, I got pretty busy and a lot of stuff was going on, and so I simply didn't record a podcast. And a lot of things happened during that time. I talked about Amanda Corker. I talked about a couple of other things that were important that happened during that time. But one thing, and probably one of the biggest things in endurance sports, certainly in the sport of running, that I didn't talk about that happened back in May was, of course the sub-two-hour marathon attempt um, by Elliot Kipchoge, uh, Zerseni Tadesi, um, and Lisa DeSisa. Now, all of them were part of the Breaking 2 project um, that was brought to us by Nike. There's a lot of criticism of that project prior to it. Um, I heard a lot of criticism of that. Uh, people saying that it was farcical, that it was uh, it was a publicity stunt was probably the biggest thing that a lot of people said. And certainly there's a publicity element to it for, for Nike, undoubtedly. Um, but nonetheless, most of what I heard afterwards was how impressive Kipchoge actually ran and how uh, cool the event turned out to be. Uh, they broadcast it live on their, their, their website, um, and, and the commentary was good, and it was interesting, and it was, it was, it was kind of fun to watch. Um, I didn't stay up and watch it. I really went back and forth about it, um, but it started at about 11.45 Eastern time here uh, in the Atlanta area, and I just couldn't bring myself to do that. Um, uh, had he broken two hours, I probably would have felt pretty bad about that, and I would be telling you right now how much I regretted not staying up for that. But rather, uh, he did not quite break two hours. He came really, really close. Ran two hours flat in 25 seconds. Now, when I say he, I'm talking about Elliot Kipchoge. There were, as I said, three runners that were part of it, three runners that towed the line at the start, uh, him, Tedesi, and DeSisa. Um but most people really thought that Kipchoge was the one around whom the program was designed and who had the greatest opportunity, the greatest chance to try and be the first person to run under two hours. Um, so what Nike did, as you probably know, um, is that they, they took three great runners who they, they felt had a good chance to break two hours, 
and then they try to control all the variables, all the intervening factors that in the past might have prevented them from getting under two hours. And so they controlled the course, for example. The course was on uh, a race car track uh, in Monza, Italy. Uh, if you're a fan of cycling, you probably know that, that it's the same place where they had the final stage time trial in the Giro d'Italia only about three or four weeks later. Um, and he ran 17 and a half laps of a 1.5 mile circuit. He just ran lap after lap after lap. He was following a pace car that was right in front of him, going almost exactly the speed that he needed to be going. And he had pacers, runners that were coming in and out of the race with him, and they were handing him all the various things that he needed to, to uh, stay hydrated and stay fueled throughout it. Um, uh, the runners, in fact, that were pacing him actually formed like a V formation in front of him um, because based upon their research, they found that was the most aerodynamic way to, to go about running. Um, and so he was wearing a special pair of shoes um, and a few other things that we're going to talk about here in just a minute. Um, and of course, the pacing was supposed to be right on. Um, he wasn't going out too fast. He wasn't going out too slow. He's supposed to go exactly 435 per mile, 1413 per 5K, um, and that was going to net him that sub too. He stayed on pace until only about five miles to go. Um, any of you who have ever run a marathon, and I can certainly attest because I've run marathons, know how hard the last 10K of a marathon is. Even when you control for all of those intervening variables, the last 8 to 10K of a marathon can be really, really difficult. It was for Kipchoge, and he fell apart. Uh, Tedeschi had fell off the pace fairly early. He still ran 206.51, so still ran super fast, um, but uh, but was you know literally a mile behind. Um, Lisa DeCisa, uh, the two-time Boston winner, uh, he had been injured a little bit coming into it, and so his buildup hadn't been great. So he ended up running 214. Uh, again, fantastic. That's 510 per mile um, after starting at 435 per mile. Um, but he fell off pretty early on, and so it wasn't a big surprise given the fact that he had been injured. Um, now, the goal was not to break the world record. The world record's 202.57 uh, set at Berlin a couple years ago. Um, and this was actually not a marathon record or marathon or record eligible attempt. Um, specifically, the pacers and allowing the pacers to come in and out and in and out and only run little chunks of the race with him um, meant that it wasn't going to be uh, a, a record legal attempt. Um, but that wasn't Nike's goal. Nike's goal was to try and, and test out a bunch of stuff um, and ideally put a person under two hours thereby demystifying the two-hour barrier um, and promoting all sorts of future runners in regular races to go after the two-hour barrier and, and potentially get under two hours. Um, the, the parallel that folks often drew was the, the, the four-minute mile, that once Roger Bannister ran under four-minute miles back in 1954, that a lot of people started running under four minutes per mile. Um, suddenly, it was no longer impossible. Suddenly, it was perfectly possible, and people started training with that in mind and started racing with that in mind. Um, and within only about a year of, of when he broke the four-minute mile, there were several other people that ended up going under four minutes as well. Um, so the two-hour marathon has kind of the same thing. Um, now, one of the other things they did, in addition to the pacers, in addition to the nutrition that was more frequent and more regular, um, in addition to the car, in addition to the track, um, they, you know, choosing the track, by the way, that also controlled for the weather, um, and so wind wasn't an issue, and, and temperature wasn't an issue, and that sort of thing. Um, another thing that they did was they outfitted him in aerodynamic clothing. Um, and you probably saw his jersey, and then he was wearing arm covers and leg covers that were beaded. And this is actually the one thing I really wanted to talk about. Um, 
Nike has been doing a lot of work with what they call AeroSwift technology. Um, if you watch the Olympic trials last summer, in the 5,000 meters, Galen Rupp, who was uh, an Olympian in the marathon last summer, ended up winning the, uh, the silver medal in the marathon, he wore tape on his knees and on his the lower legs um, that was designed to be more aerodynamic and perhaps move his legs more swiftly through the air. Um, Kipchoge was wearing the same thing on his arms and on his legs as well. Now, the idea here is that, that if you're able to move your arms and your legs more quickly or with less drag through the air, then they're lighter, effectively, um, and you're therefore able to exert less energy in moving all of your limbs. Um, now, this is a good time for me to point out something that I pointed out before on this podcast, and that's my favorite piece of research of all time related to running and running efficiency, um, and that is that the most or the highest correlation of any factor with running speed is the circumference of someone's lower legs. Um, now, said another way, let me say it a better way. Of all the various factors that they can measure in a lab, of all the different stuff that they can measure, and they can measure a lot of different things in the lab. Um, we're going to talk about some of the things today, but uh, you know, height, weight, BMI, max VO2, the length of your feet, um, the weight of your bones, whatever it happens to be, of all the various things that they can measure in a lab, the single biggest factor that contributes to running speed is the circumference of your lower legs. The skinnier your legs, the faster you're going to run, period. Um, and that's fantastic for somebody like me because when I'm in the gym and I'm doing squats and somebody calls me chicken legs, I can say, hey, well, whatever you say, slowpoke. It doesn't bother me because I know that because I have skinny legs, it means I'm faster than that guy. Um, and so, like I said, my favorite piece of research. Um, if you're a fan of, of track and field, of course, and I might have mentioned this before on this podcast, uh, you, you, you've heard of Oscar Pistorius. Oscar Pistorius, the so-called Blade Runner, um, is the, the South African 400-meter runner who lobbied the Court for Arbitration of Sport and the International Athletics Association um, to actually take part in... Uh, the Olympic Games in 2012, despite the fact that he's missing both of his legs. Um, rather than, than, he's an above-the-knee amputee, I think it is. He might be slightly below the knee, but one way or another, his lower legs, rather than having a lower leg, he has uh, blades, carbon fiber blades that he runs on. Um, and he won several Paralympic medals and, and was simply looking to, to compete at a higher level against able-bodied athletes. Um, he was originally kept out by the IAAF and by the International Olympic Committee um, because they said that those blades gave him an advantage. Um, and a lot of people from the outside saw that and said, how could that possibly give him an advantage? Okay, he might get some little bitty bounce from it or something like that, um, but, but that small bounce he's going to get is not going to make up for the fact that he's missing the lower half of his leg. Um, in fact, what the IOC and the IAAF argued was that because his lower legs were so light that he was actually able to move them more quickly through space, more quickly through the air, and that's where the advantage lay not in the fact that he was getting some springiness from the carbon fiber, rather the fact that, that, that his lower legs were so light that, that that enabled him to run faster. So, back to Elliot Kipchoge in the sub-two-hour marathon attempt. They put that AeroSwift technology on his lower legs. It looks like he was wearing compression sleeves on his lower legs, but they weren't compression sleeves. They were, they were beaded sleeves that would help him move his legs more quickly and more easily 
through the air by reducing the drag on his legs. And he had one on his arms as well. You might have seen a couple of Olympians like Alex, Allison Felix warm last summer in the Olympic Games in Rio. Um, uh, I would totally wear this stuff. <laughs> um, I mean, I come from a running background, but but I spent uh, years as a bike racer, and then I spent more years as a triathlete, and so the benefits of aerodynamics are something I believe in, man. Um, and so if you were to give me some aero tape or to give me some, some arm covers, I mean, I'm doing the Chicago Marathon in nine weeks. Give me some arm covers because it's going to be cool that morning anyway. Put some little beads on there that will make me go faster. I would totally do that. Um, I would totally do that, but alas, Nike is not yet selling them on their website. Uh, they're not even selling the Aeroswift technology tape. Um, they do have a lot of stuff on their website about it, and they have close-ups of the tape. And if you look at it, it looks like um, it almost looks like little thorns on the tape um, that, that 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 break up the air the air and help it flow more quickly across uh, the 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 tape um, or any taped area uh, rather than than uh, naked skin would be. Um, and it's not just actually Nike that's working on this. Um, lots of different companies, particularly in cycling, but but in, in things actually outside of the world of endurance sports are doing it as well. If you watch the Tour de France this past summer, in the opening time trial, um, Chris Froome, uh, who went on to win the Tour de France, he finished second in that opening time trial, I believe, um, but definitely finished in the top five and was, was, was in front of the, the other contenders, uh, was wearing, wearing a skin suit uh, that was beaded. Um, it was from Castelli, and it actually had beads for the same reason, that it breaks up the airflow and moves the, the, the air more quickly and more readily across your, your body. Um, so uh, this past weekend, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, you might have seen that they did come out with one piece of aero technology, um, and that's sunglasses. Um, I shared a link to the, uh, the sunglasses on the webpage um, and, or on the Facebook page. You might have seen that. Um, but they claim that it drastically cuts drag. Um, I submit Elliot Kipchoge was not wearing those sunglasses and if those sunglasses in fact drastically cut drag one second per mile maybe he should have been wearing those sunglasses I don't know um, they're, 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 they, have, they're, they look like big shields um, like the Hypermass from Rudy Project or something like that um, they, they, they cover your entire face um, and so the hinges they don't have hinges um, because hinges are, are drag producing and then the edges of the lenses are actually contoured and cut in such a way that it sort of looks like the wing of a plane um, and they say that's, that will make your head more aerodynamic and, and therefore make you run faster um, if they didn't cost $400 I might give it a shot um, but alas they do cost $400 my birthday's tomorrow if you want to hook me up, I would appreciate it, but uh, I don't see myself wearing any of those in Chicago or in any other races in the future, um, unless maybe someone fall off the back of a truck or something. Anyway, um, another piece of news I just want to talk about real quickly here, um, because some of you might have seen this as well. Um, there was a tweet sent out by a professional cyclist from Team Sky named Powell Poljanski um, that got a lot of attention inside the endurance world. Um, and the tweet was a picture of his legs after stage 16 of the Tour de France. And that was about a 100-mile stage, had a mountaintop finish. Uh, well, not a mountaintop finish, but it was a mountainous stage, and it had a hilly hilltop finish. Um, and uh, he tweeted out this picture of his legs, and they were covered in veins. Um, and if you haven't seen it, I'll, 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 uh, I'll put it on... on Put it on Facebook. Maybe I'll put it on the the, the, the show notes of the blog as well. Um, but you can see 
every single vein in his leg. And of course, you can see his, his awesome cyclist tan lines as well. Um, and, and folks kind of lost their minds over it. You know, why is his leg so veiny? Doesn't that hurt? Isn't that bad for him? Isn't that dangerous? All sorts of other things like that. Um, and so I think it's actually um, a good entry point to talk about what happens to your body as part of training here. Um, now, the very first responses from uh, various people inside the, the, the medical community, sports med community, were a little bit off because I think they were just trying to, to put something out there real fast. Oh, yeah, this is why his legs look like that. Um, and there was one in particular from this, uh, this English guy that appeared in uh, a bunch of English newspapers that basically just said, oh, yeah, his veins are just like anybody else's. He's just really skinny. And that's the reason why you can see his veins a little bit better. Um, certainly, he is skinny. Certainly, he does have thin legs. He's at stage 16 of the Tour de France, and so by this point, he's he's um, you know gotten rid of a lot of the extra uh, that he might be carrying around prior to the start of the Tour de France. Um, but skinniness doesn't account for for the veininess of his legs in that photo. Um, Rather, the the bigger deal is the vascularization that takes place in your legs when the demands for oxygen are really, really, really high. Um, and essentially, when those demands for oxygen are high, the body responds in two ways. Uh, the first one is that uh, it creates more veins and more vascularization. Um, it creates more non-visible capillaries. And so at the muscular level and at the near microscopic level, those little tiny, tiny veins, um, the capillaries that carry it all the way out to the very, very tip of your muscles, um, there are more of those in people who are highly trained. Um, Kenyan runners, for example, um, have been measured to have much greater uh, numbers of mitochondria and much greater uh, uh, numbers of, of non-visible capillaries, much greater capillar capillarization, if you will, um, in their muscles. Um, and that's considered to be one of the things that makes them so successful and so world-beating at distance running. Is that because of nature? Is that because of nurture? Is it some combination of both? Probably some combination of both. But um, but one way or another, they tend to have more capillaries than most of the rest of us. Now, the big veins, the ones that were sticking out in his legs, you don't tend to have more big veins, veins that are actually returning blood back to the to the heart uh, after it's been delivered to the muscles, but those veins too tend to be larger. They tend to have greater uh, diameter um, and they tend to transport more. Uh, the reason why they're larger is because you have, and the second big thing, is that you have more blood volume. Uh, this is called hypervolemia. Um, and essentially, as you train more and as your body demands more and more oxygen from you, one of the ways that your body responds is by creating more blood inside of your body. Um, an untrained person has about 50 to 75 milliliters per kilogram of weight, um, which equates to about 5-7% of their body mass in blood. Um, a world-class endurance athlete can have as much as 150 milliliters per kilogram of body weight, um, or about 15% of their body weight can be made up of with blood. Um, so just using myself as an example, I weigh just shy of 70 kilograms. Um, if I had 50 milliliters per kilogram of blood, that would be 3.5 liters of blood. If I had 150, the upper end of that range, that would be over 10 liters of blood. I would literally have three times as much blood coursing through my body, even though I'd be the same size. Now, I'm, I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have over 10 liters of blood in my body. Um, however, um, if you're an athlete who is trained for a goal, um, and, and you are somebody who at times in your training cycle are fitter than you are at other times, 
you have probably noticed that there are certain signs in your body. There are certain ways that you look that you say, okay, you know what? Now I'm in shape. That's like an indication to you, an outward invisible sign that, yes, I'm now fitter than I am at other points of the year. Now, if you're the type of athlete that stays in shape all the time, um, and then you're sort of generally fit all the time, you jump in and out of races, and you don't necessarily peak for anything, you don't periodize your training, you might not know what I'm talking about. But if you're somebody who, say around the off season or the transition season, um, doesn't really work all that hard and, and you don't really watch what you eat and you gain a lot of weight, weight and all that sort of thing. And then come the last 18 weeks or so ahead of your big race, you really start to focus in and you start watching what you eat and you start training much more diligent and all that sort of thing. So you're, you're periodizing your training, you're targeting your training towards specific races. Again, you probably have certain visible signs that indicate to you that you're in shape. For me, there's two of them. As an athlete, there's two of them. One is that my cheeks look flatter. Um, some people might say sunken. I would say flatter. Um, but, but they look a little bit flatter on my face. My face doesn't look as round. My cheeks look a little bit more flat. Um, and the other thing is that the veins on my arms stand out more. And the reason why that's a big one is because of hypervolemia. When I'm fittest, when I am ready to do a race, when I am strong, I have more blood in my body. And the veins that are in my arms and in my legs and in the rest of me is under strain from the extra blood that I have produced as part of the training process to get ready for that race. Um, This is also, by the way, why hydration is so important and why hydration can actually be more difficult to maintain if you're a fit person. Um, If you're at the top of your fitness, if you're getting ready for your best race, it can actually be more difficult to maintain Uh, hydration because you have more blood, ergo you have more blood to hydrate. Um, um, But hydration is super important because, you know, your blood needs to be thin enough, hydrated enough to be able to to course through your body. Um, If you are dehydrated and you're super fit, it's going to actually have more of a deleterious effect on you than it would if you weren't as fit and got dehydrated Um, because that's more blood that's trying to get through your body. And if you allow your health to become dehydrated, um, it, it's really, really hard for your body to, to, to pump that thick blood through it. Um, it is a lesson that I learned the hard way or was reminded of the hard way just this past Sunday, um, which segues into the next thing we want to talk about. So last time you'll recall that, that we were talking about uh, Strava and we were talking about tech and all that good th- all that stuff. Um, and, and I got a lot of good feedback specifically about Strava. Um, and as I said before, this is why I do the podcast. I, I, I like getting feedback. I like having conversations with people at the track or on Facebook or wherever it happens to be about whatever it is that we discussed in the podcast. I like having that, that interchange. Um, one of the things that stood out to me amidst the interchange is that folks love Strava, man. Um, and I love Strava too. Um, so there was a couple of people that, that when, I, when I said something about Strava being the devil, they're like, oh, hey, hey, you're talking about Strava. That's not okay. Um, I love Strava too. I do. Um, I, I upload my data to Garmin Connect so that it will sync with Strava and Training Peaks, but I never go on Garmin Connect. I don't know anything about how to use it or, or what its features are or anything else like that. Um, Strava and Training Peaks are the two places where, where I put all of my data. And I spend a lot of time looking at Strava. And so, so if I suggested that, that you shouldn't be using Strava, I apologize. That wasn't my intention. Um, one of the listeners, Whitney, said that, that it gives her a really good boost after a lot of runs. And I get that. It gives me a really good boost, too. Now, she said that after a bad run, she won't put it on Strava sometimes. Um, and I'll talk more about somebody else later on that, that, that refused to put something on Strava just this past week. But um, 
I actually, when I have a bad run, it's very encouraging for me. Um, I had a bad run the day before the last podcast. So Sunday a week ago, I had a bad run. Uh, it was terrible. Um, as I said, I got dehydrated. Um, I bonked. I just, anything that could have gone wrong, I was weighing a little bit extra poundage because I had just come back from vacation at the beach. I mean, it was just like anything you can imagine going wrong in the last three or four miles of that run totally went wrong. Um, and if you bonked on a bike, that's bad. If you've never bonked on a run, consider yourself incredibly lucky. There is nothing worse because you cannot go anywhere. Um, you're stuck three miles from home and you have to cover that space. Um, there's just nothing worse. And you can't just sit on your bike and, and, and cruise and, and just not pedal. Um, uh, rather, you actually have to move over that space. And so there's nothing worse than a bonk on a run, I swear. But um, when I came back home, I uploaded it onto to Strava. Um, and, and Strava then gave me comparisons to all the runs I've done on that same course over the course of my time on Strava. Um, and it showed me all the different segments, all the different pieces of the run that I've run in that run or that course or any other course that I've run that, after, that also included those segments. And what I could see by looking at that was, yeah, you know what? This run was an outlier. This run is not indicative of my fitness. This run is not who I am as a runner. This is not the new normal for me. Uh, this was a very bad day. Um, and I took a lot of comfort in that, as a matter of fact. Um, I, I, I actually took a lot of comfort in, in Strava showing me the sort of runner that I was in the past relative to this bad run um, because it showed me that I wasn't as bad as this run was. Um, and so I totally get looking at Strava and taking comfort from it and getting a boost from it and all that sort of thing. Um, now, side note on this, by the way, somebody else was talking to me about this and somebody asked me this week, um, they said, so what kind of data do you like? Do you like TSS scores, training stress scores in training peaks? And I said, I do for cycling, but I don't for running. Um, my TSS score, my training stress score for that run, that bad run I had last week was a very low score because it looked at how low my pace was my average pace was, particularly over the course of those last few miles, and they said, oh, he wasn't running very hard. Now, mind you, I was in zone three and four when I was doing, you know, four minutes slower, three minutes slower per mile than, than marathon pace. Um, but but Strava, or pardon me, Training Peaks, just figured, oh, well, you know, he was just running that pace. He was just running that slow. That wasn't really much of an effort, so it didn't take a whole lot out of him. So here's a low training stress score for him. Um, I did a workout, a fairly difficult marathon-based workout just the other day, um, and it was an eight-mile run, and I did it on the treadmill, so I didn't stop, um, and and I actually had the data from the treadmill that I then uploaded into Training Peak, so it wasn't just me punching it in manually, um, and and it started with a mile, warm, two miles of warm-up, and then it was a mile at 5K pace, a mile at 10K pace, and three miles of marathon pace, and then I went back to one-mile cool-down, which was a stroll. Um, cool downs, in my opinion, are the most blissful part of all of running because you've just done something really hard and there's no pressure to run even the slightest bit hard on your cool down. Um, and so you can just kind of stroll along and reflect on what you've just done and think about what a badass you are and everything else like that. So so put all of that together into one eight-mile run and my average pace for that eight-mile run with the stroll at the end, with the three miles at marathon pace, with the mile at 5K pace, which is hard, dude, um, and a mile at 10K pace, plus two miles worth of warm-up, put all that together, and my average pace was 633 uh, per mile. Um, 
Training Peaks looks at the fact that I did an eight mile run, a six thirty three pace, and says, "Oh, that's that's half a minute slower than his marathon pace. That's not really all that hard for him." Uh, and so here's what your training stress score is. It was a lot harder than just going out and running eight miles at six thirty three pace would have been. But the training stress score in Training Peaks simply said, "Oh no, no, that was just you know not too hard of a run. It was a pretty hard run." So anyway. Um, Training stress scores in training peaks, when somebody says, what data matters to you? Training stress scores in training peaks is one of those things that don't matter to me all that much when it comes to running. Um, it's good in cycling. In cycling, they have so-called normalized power, and that's how they base, or that's how they get their training stress scores. In running, they don't do a normalized pace. Um, it simply averages your pace and says, oh, this is how hard you ran, and, and I think that they're off. Anyway, back to Strava. Um, uh, Eric, uh, a listener, said that, that, that he really likes the gear reminders, on Strava, and I agree with him. I totally love the gear reminders on Strava. Um, he said that, that that he's too lazy to, to keep up with himself, which I always kind of get a kick out of things when 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 endurance athletes call them lazy, call themselves lazy. Um, but but we can talk about that in some other podcast. I think it's sort of an interesting term. But anyway, um, but the gear reminders that say, "Hey, you have 400 miles on these shoes. It's time to go ahead and start looking for a new pair. You don't have to get them today, but it's probably a good idea." Um, yeah, I think that's great. That's super easy, the fact that it keeps up with the number of miles on your shoes and all that sort of thing. He also mentioned, and I agree with this, the heat maps. So if you go to some place where you've never run before, you can pull up on Strava a heat map, and it shows you where people in that area run. Um, that's a lot safer. It's a lot better. You're more likely to see other runners when you're out there. Uh, so I think those are pretty cool, too. Um, if I've ever been in other places, sometimes I'll pull up segments. Um, I'll do the segment search, and I'll say, say segment search based on where I am right now. And, and if I see the certain segments, I can say, okay, there's a hill here, there's a hill here, and I can map out my route from someplace I don't even know uh, based on where it is that people have put segments and hills um, and where it is that people actually run. I think that's super helpful. Um, and so, so Strava does that to you. Um, it is important to keep in mind, and perhaps I didn't say this quickly or clearly enough last time, that, that, that Strava can be great in those regards, and it can be great, as I said last time, in giving you those short-term rewards and goals. Um, and those short-term rewards and goals are stepping stones or benchmarks towards those long-term goals and rewards. Um, but the important thing is to don't let those short-term rewards sabotage the long-term rewards. Um, and, and when I and when other coaches sometimes complain about Strava or warn people against Strava, that's what we're worried about. We're worried about those short-term goals, those, those, those real transient small things that Strava gives you getting in the way of the big things, the long-term goals, the important goals. Um, and I don't think everybody does that. Clearly, I mentioned Whitney and Eric. I don't think either one of them do that. Um, I do think there are people who let short-term small rewards on Strava get in the way of bigger, more important, um, and ultimately, I would think more rewarding rewards. Um, there's also a question that came up about laces. A few people asked me this question, as a matter of fact, about lock laces or similarly stretchy laces. Um, and they said, okay, so if I'm using like, like those stretchy laces, um, you know, how am I supposed to lace my shoes then? Um, the short answer to that is that the, the research about lacing your shoes tightly still applies, um, uh, although it may look a little bit different. Um, I, uh, I saw a picture one time of Sergio Gomez, the great ITU racer, the world champion, um, and uh, who is now transitioning into long course non-drafting races. Um, and his race shoes were basically a ball um, because his laces were on so tight 
um, and they, they were they were elastic, and so they would stretch out. Um, and before he put his shoes on, they were a ball. I mean, that's how, how to. And plus, he had very flexible shoes, obviously, as well. Um, he also wanted to have his shoes particularly tight because he needed them to stay on his feet because there's so much turning, 180 degree turning in ITU racing. Um, but but yeah, you would expect you still want them to be tight, um, even if you're using stretchy laces. Um, and that to me also that question highlights a bigger issue um, or at least another issue uh, and that's that laces not stretchy laces but just regular cloth laces laces actually do stretch and loosen over time um, and so you know you might lace them up when you, when you first get them you lace them up you know tight comfortable not too tight not so tight that they're causing you to have black toenails and and and, and causing causing you to lose circulation in your feet and it's not so tight that they're, they're changing your gait but tight enough to pull your foot remember we said into the shoe such that your foot will work more in concert with the shoe so tight um but over time they will loosen over time the fibers will stretch and they're loosen and so after 100 miles 150 miles 200 miles um you'll need to to relace those um so um, an additional word, or talking a little bit more here about tech, and this is sort of the thing I want to talk a little bit more about today, um, and this is sort of the, the the continued reflections that I've had on on technology and motivation and all that sort of thing over the course of the past week, um, due in part to you know my listening to the podcast and my continuing to reflect on the issues there, and then of course the the feedback as I said that the in the conversation that I had with various people, um, I'm still thinking that the thing that I'm stuck on from last week is that stat that said that 42% of people in that study from the UK who use technology, who measured their runs using some sort of tracker, lose their motivation or lose some amount of motivation when their tech doesn't work. Um, and most of them, you'll recall, said that, well, they'll still run anyway. You know, Even if your tech doesn't work, the vast majority, over 80%, said, no, no, I'm still going to run. I'm still going to do what it is I'm supposed to do. But you lose some measure of motivation. Nearly half the people who use activity trackers in that study said they lose some amount of motivation when they have some sort of tech breakdown. And I get that. I, I, I feel that too. Um, I've sensed that myself. I used to joke with a friend of mine that I rode bikes with back in the day that if you couldn't record your ride, it was as if you didn't do it. And I've heard other people make the same joke. If you haven't posted, if you don't have data from it, it doesn't count. I have a friend who on Strava um, doesn't give kudos to anybody else if they don't have a map on there because it's not as if they didn't do it. Um, I had a friend make the, that a different friend make that joke just this past week when uh, when when he was going to give me kudos or not give me kudos. Side note on that. I don't give anybody kudos if they don't change the default name of their activity. If it simply says morning run, lunch run, evening swim, something like that, in other words, you didn't bother to go into Strava, it's simply auto-updated from your Garmin Connect and you went with the default name, I do not give kudos on that, even if you did something fabulous. Okay, well, I take that back. If you did something fabulous, I will tend to give you kudos on that, but one of my personal rules is that you got to go in there and change it, so... For the sake of my Strava experience, please change your names on there. But anyway, um, back to that idea of, of take, tech breakdown and, and losing motivation. The reason why it stands out to me is because some tech breakdown is just the price of admission. Your technology is not going to work 100% of the time. You're going to have technology issues. And the more technology you use and the more heavily reliant you get on technology... Um, the, the more breakdowns you can expect. Just because you know if you use it more often, it's going to break. Um, and so, so I've thought about that a lot and, and about what that means for motivation and, and, and what some of the takeaways can be from that. Um, and I've thought specifically a lot about Trainer Road. 
Um, Trainer Road, as some of you might know, is is an online cycling platform. And at ITL, we're pretty deeply invested in Trainer Road, as a matter of fact. Um, on ITL, we've written 24 weeks worth of workouts, four different series worth of workouts um, on Trainer Road that are run through Trainer Road. I personally use Trainer Road at least twice, if not three or four times a week. Um, and Trainer Road, what it is, uh, is it's an online cycling platform. Um, and so when you're riding your bike inside your house, it picks up the data from your bike if you have the requisite technology. It displays it on screen, it records it, and then it automatically syncs it with Strava um, and with Training Peaks um, and with lots of other online things as well. And so, so it basically lays out for you exactly what your workout's going to be. Um, and then it, 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 if you have an electronic trainer like I do, if you have a Wahoo Kicker, um, it'll actually change the resistance on the trainer based upon that, what that workout is. Um, and so it's a, it's a really fantastic platform. Um, what enables us to do an ITL is that I'm able to write a workout, I'm able to put it on Trainer Road, and then all the athletes I coach or some of the athletes I coach or even athletes I don't coach can go on to that workout. They can run it from their house. Um, and not only will they have exactly the workout that I want them to have, but they'll be able to see on screen in text whatever it is I want them to see. So if we have an announcement to make or I have something that I want them to know or something else like that, I can simply put it on screen um, and that's something that they'll actually see. And so um, I deeply, like I said, am personally invested in it. Um, every indoor ride that I do, I use Trainer Road um, to, to capture the data. Um, but also as a coach, I'm invested in it as well. Um, now, I found that there's a couple of common glitches. Uh, the first one, and this is only on a, an electronic trainer like like a Compu Trainer or or a Wahoo Kicker or a Lamon Trainer or something like that, um, a uh, a PowerTap Pro, I think they're called. Um, but uh, on electronic trainers, sometimes the computer and the trainer will lose contact with one another, um, and one of two things will happen: either one, the target power will go up or down, and the trainer doesn't. And so, so you'll be sitting there spinning along or, or pedaling along at 100 watts, and then you're supposed to sit now go up to 200 watts, and and the trainer doesn't go; it stays at 100 watts. And so you're like, I gotta hit this repeat, I gotta get it going, and the trainer just stays there. Or it can be the other way; you're like going really, really hard. You're at the tail end of a, of a repeat, uh, and it's supposed to turn back down so you get some rest, and it won't turn down. Um, that's pretty uh, pretty demoralizing and, and can be pretty difficult. Um, and then the other thing that happens when they lose contact is that the target power can go up or down, and so does the trainer, but then it's not reflected in the data capture. So in other words, it's supposed to go up to 300 watts, and you feel that your trainer is now requiring you to pedal at 300 watts, but it still says on the screen that you're pedaling 120 watts, 115 watts, something like that. And that can be kind of frustrating as well. Um, the other really common glitch is that the computer and the trainer will lose contact uh, so that the reading for the trainer goes entirely blank. Um, now, the reason why this is a problem is because Trainer Road, when it goes blank, when it loses contact like that, it factors in a zero for that second or two seconds or five seconds that, that the computer and the trainer are not uh, communicating with one another. And that's a real problem. So, for example... Let's say that you're supposed to, to do three minutes at 250 watts according to your workout on Trainer Road. Three minutes at 250 watts. And let's say you lose five seconds in there. So you're pedaling along, three minutes, da da da, right there around the two minute mark. Suddenly the computer and the trainer aren't working anymore, and for two seconds, the screen kind of goes blank. There's no measurement. Oh, but then it catches it back up, and you're back up to 300, right? And then it does it again for about three seconds right around the minute to go mark. And so you lose a total of five seconds in there 
of your three minutes at 250. Now, you're still pedaling at three or 250 watts during that three minutes. Um, but at the end of that interval, at the end of that repeat, when it pops up your average on the screen, it's going to say that your average was 243 watts for that three minutes, even though you went 250 watts for that entire three minutes. And the reason why is because it factored in zero watts for each one of those five seconds that you lost. That's 7%, or that's 7 watts, that's 3% um, for five seconds worth of of data loss. Um, And when you see that, again, thinking about the idea of motivation and losing motivation, you're like, oh man, you know, I was really working hard, I was really trying to hit that 250, I was really focused on that 250, and then bang, 243, sorry George, you're a loser. Um, And so that can really, you know, mess with your mind when you're actually doing it. Um, it's more pronounced, that effect is more pronounced if your power, if your target power is higher. So averaging a zero would mean more. Um, or if the time of the interval, the repeat, is actually lower. So like five seconds would actually be more. Um, so let's consider another example. Let's consider if you're doing like one minute at 300 watts. And I crunched the numbers on these things as you can probably gather. One minute at 300 watts. So let's say you're pedaling along at 100 watts. Like that's your rest interval intensity and you're just pedal along easy super your heart rate's low and and you see the countdown your one minute at 300 watts is coming up you hit one minute to go but it's not as if you're going to go from 100 watts to 300 watts immediately there has to be a wind up that takes place your trainer has to gradually increase the resistance until you can get up to 300 it doesn't just go 100 automatically 300 and so that would mean if it's winding up from 100 to 300, that would mean you spend one, the first second at about maybe 140, that second second uh, at about 170, that third second at about 240, that third fourth second at about 270, and by the time you're five seconds in, hey, you've hit it. You're at 300. You're now going at the target for that minute. And so you, you hold that for, say, 50 seconds, and then just before the finish, so one second to go, it winds back down again. And so that last second of your one minute repeat is averaging about 150. So you end up with that, and there's no real tech problems there. It just took longer for your, your trainer to wind up and it started winding down a little bit early. You factor all that in, and it's gonna tell you that your average for that one minute was 291 watts. Now, there is, again, 3%, um, and there wasn't even an issue there. Now, imagine that you had actually added in two seconds worth of zeros in the middle. So let's say like right about the 30-second mark, um, it lost communication, and so the screen blanked for a second, even though you're still pedaling at 300 watts. So it factors in two seconds worth of zeros. Now it's going to tell you that, that your wattage was only 281 watts. You pedaled at 300 watts. You pretty much hit the goal, and there was not a whole lot of tech problems in there, but yet it's going to tell you, oh, hey, you only hit 281 watts on that. You were 19 watts short of the target power on that repeat. That can be very demotivating. Uh, That can be very demoralizing. Now, it shows it to you on the screen, but then it puts it up in the summary with those wrong numbers at the finish, and then it automatically uploads to Strava so everybody else can see all of your wrong numbers as well. That can be really demotivating, really demoralizing, and, and, and I can appreciate that. Um, there's basically two things I can say about that. Um, and, and I am speaking directly, of course, to the people who, who use Trainer Road, including the people who are in our trainer workouts right now who have seen this and experienced this and have been frustrated and perhaps demotivated by this. Two things I can say. The first one is from a workout point of view, it doesn't matter. 
Um, 55 seconds at 300 is just as good as 60 seconds as 300. And what's more, um, if it goes out for the two seconds in the middle of the 30, you were still pedaling. You know you were still pedaling. You're still good. Um, you don't have to worry about that. You still got the benefit of pedaling for a minute at 300 watts, even if Trainer Road obnoxiously tells you that you only pedaled 281 watts for that 60 seconds. You're good. Um, you can't care that Strava has it wrong. Um, there is data all the time that I put up on Strava or that's automatically uploaded to Strava from Trainer Road that's just flat wrong. For me, and, and sometimes it's so wrong that I feel the the need to put in the description lots of tech issues today. Wow, this data is totally wrong. Um, but you just can't worry about that. Um, which leads into the second thing that perhaps will give you some solace. I, I've decided that Strava, in some ways, is kind of like the groom at a wedding. That the groom at a wedding tries to look really good and tries to make sure that that everything's all put together and gets his haircut and shaves and, and all that sort of thing, um, because he wants to make sure he looks good for his wedding. Nobody's looking at the groom at the wedding. Um, we sometimes people think that that everybody's looking at our Strava and judging us on Strava, and nobody's really looking all that closely. Um, nobody is looking at your Strava saying, "Wow, this is really a slow run for that guy," or 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 you know he's really dropped off in his fitness over the course of the past couple of weeks, or or they're not looking at like the arc of your training uh, to say, "Well, he did this yesterday, now he's going to do that," and then next week. Nobody does that on Strava. You look at something you're like, "Hey, that was a pretty good run for that guy." Click, click, click. Kudos, 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 maybe a comment or two. Nobody's actually looking at it that closely. The only people that might look at your Strava that closely are people that are slower than you that want to beat you. Um, and the fact is, if somebody that's slower than you that wants to beat you is looking at your Strava and your Strava is underrepresenting what it is you're doing in training, that's probably a good thing. Um, that's totally demoralizing for them because they're like, wow, he's able to beat me by this much in a race even though he does these really slow and not all that great workouts. Um, Man, I don't know what's going on. So, I, again, I think that, that that we worry a little bit too much about the way things sometimes might look on Strava. Um, then one other thing I do want to say about Trainer Road that ties a little bit back to something we talked about last time. Um, and, and that's having to do with cheering. Um, so you recall last time I mentioned there was a study out of the University of Miami about cheering and, and what cheering, what things people can say that actually motivate runners in a race the most. Um, and... I thought about it with regards to Trainer Road um, in two ways. The first one is in text. As I mentioned, you can actually put text on the screen, and a lot of the workouts have text on the screen. I did a workout yesterday on Trainer Road. It was a two-hour workout, and it was hard, man. Um, And during the hardest parts of it, um, the person who wrote the workout was really getting on my nerves with the text that they put on the screen. Um, There are two problems. One, they're putting too much info on there. They were talking about all this garbage when I was like, ringing myself out trying to do the hardest parts of the stuff and they're, and, and, they're, and they're trying to tell me like deep info about the way that cycling works and, and, and human physiology operates I'm like I don't care about that right now uh, I'm just trying to focus on the next three seconds here and then the other thing they did is that several times during the hard parts they would say hang on just hang on for another 30 seconds literally that would be the phrase just hang on for another 30 seconds and that to me felt a little bit too much like that person that I told you back about in the last episode that said come on George you can do it it felt patronizing just hang on that just doesn't inspire me I don't want somebody saying hang on George you can hang on I want somebody saying you are strong you are tough be strong show your speed Um, this is hard but you are harder Uh, that's the kind of thing that I want to hear and so the text was really really bothering me um 
I've solicited in the workouts that I've written, I've solicited feedback from people asking them, okay, what text is the most motivating text for you? Um, Because I think some texts can be, in fact, motivating. Uh, But you'll recall, again, that that one about cheering. Um, It's not all that conclusive yet. Uh, the silver lining is that, that they are starting to do some research on, on cheering. And so maybe when they do that and it is published, we'll be able to see it. Um, and then we can use that when we're writing workouts on Trainer Road to determine what the, the, the best use of the text on Trainer Road would be. Uh, but we're just not there yet. But the other thing uh, that ties back to, to the stuff about cheering and motivation is what you're doing while you're also writing on Trainer Road. So do you watch TV? Do you listen to music? what sort of things might actually play in there. Now, TV, I imagine, is probably a, a very much a, a, a personal thing, uh, and it probably needs to be something that's not going to distract you too from too much from, from what it is that you're doing. Um, my wife has done a lot of indoor training as well since she uh, is an endurance cyclist, an ultra cyclist, um, and, and she can watch like comedies and stuff like that. I want to say she even liked to watch Breaking Bad or something while she was on the trainer one time. I cannot do that. About the only thing that I was ever able to watch on the television while while cycling, and this is still true today, is cycling races or maybe Ironman competitions or something like that. Um, but I do listen to music, a lot of music when I'm when I'm inside. I have many, 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 many playlists on Spotify. Uh, for various things. I have a specific playlist for the Chicago Marathon that I've been working on over the course of the past six months that I think I might finally now be done with, even though I might be tweaking it over the course of the next little while. Um, And so I wanted to look up and see, okay, what music is actually most helpful? Uh, What does the research say about helpful music? And and I found a couple of interesting things that, that, um, that, that may be helpful for you as well when you're thinking about music and working out and all that sort of thing. Uh, the first thing I found was a, an article in the International Journal of Sports Medicine from 2003, uh, and it's kind of typical. Um, they took 16 well-conditioned people, um, and they put them on bikes. We've talked about before about how they like to do stuff on, on cycling trainers because they're, they're so controllable. Uh, and they did a 10-kilometer time trial. Uh, first, they did it without any music. They just went out there and they did a 10-kilometer tra- time trial. And then the second time they did it, they played for them some EDM, some electronic dance music, uh, specifically some EDM that had 142 beats per minute. So some pretty you know, high-tempo stuff here. Um, and what they found was that the people started faster and finished faster, uh, but their splits from 5K to 9K, which is really the hard part of the race, uh, really the hard part of the effort, were totally unaffected. They were almost identical, as a matter of fact. Um, they also, and this is important, they perceived that they were riding harder. And so in some ways, it actually made the perception be maybe not all that great. Um, now, side note on this. I know I've kind of been filled with side notes, and this is what you get from me when I haven't recorded a podcast in a long time. Side note on this. One of my favorite pieces of research that I've been looking for a way to bring in um, uh, over the course of the last little while was released only a few months ago, and it was about treadmills. Um, and there was a, I've been doing a lot of training on the treadmill lately because my, my wife has started working in the morning, so I can't get up super early in the morning to, to, to do my runs. Um, and then in the afternoons, it's so hot, and so I end up on the treadmill. Um, and there was a, a recent study about perception and treadmills. And they took a group of runners, and they had the runners run on a treadmill at what they considered to be an easy pace, a steady pace. Not a hard pace, but, but by no means a walk, Right. And then they had them hop off the treadmill, and they, they didn't show them any data. So they hop off the treadmill, and then running by feel, they just run on the track for about another mile at what they said was the same level of effort, the same pace. Again, no feedback. They can't see the pace. They can't see the speed. They can't see the time. Then they had them get back on the treadmill again and run one more mile at that same easy pace or what felt to be easy. 
Um, and what they found was that when they put the runners back on the treadmill, the runners would run up to two minutes per mile slower on the treadmill at what felt like the same effort level. And the takeaway from that is that, that, that a treadmill is not any harder, but it feels harder. Mentally, it's tougher for you. You feel like you're running faster and harder than you are. Um, and, and so you do have to kind of pay attention to those numbers when you're actually on a treadmill. Anyway, um, that was a side note about treadmills today, so that I thought was kind of interesting. But anyway, uh, getting back to the idea of music, um, there was also a 2014 study out of Brazil uh, where they played music for runners doing a track uh, 5K, and they found something similar to that that uh, 2003 article that I mentioned a second ago, um, that it sped up the runners at the start, but then it kind of petered out. Um, that their first two laps of the 12.5 laps on the track of their 5K were faster, but then after that, um, it, it kind of petered out. It didn't really make all that much of a difference. The authors interestingly concluded there that harder running doesn't need the music. Um, that once your brain uh, realizes that there's a hard effort afoot, it takes over for you. And so you might need, and, and that kind of would also help to explain some of the, the findings in that 2003 study on the bikes, that, that you need something maybe to, to jumpstart your brain to, to get you into it, um, but but once you're actually into it, you don't necessarily need it to keep you going because your brain will then take over and actually it will do the pushing for you. Now, interesting part of that study, that 2014 study out of Brazil, is that after the workout, they played some really calming music for the athletes. They played for them Inya, as a matter of fact. Um, and what they found is that playing that slow, calming Inya music actually helped people return more quickly to their pre-workout state. And so in other words, listening to calming music after a difficult workout actually boosted your recovery. Um, which to me was very interesting because after a good workout, I always want to be listening to like really upbeat music because I'm fired up, you know? Who's the man? I'm the man! Listen, you know, and rock out. Um, and in fact, listening to softer, more chill music can actually boost your recovery, they found in 2014 there. Um, one other thing that, that, that uh, was kind of interesting, uh, there was a 2006 study out of the University of Plymouth in the UK um, where they actually looked at music tempo and they looked at the loudness of a music, of course. Um, and they took 30 participants, all of whom were well-trained, and they, they, they put it into five different categories. They played music of five different categories for them. One was loud and fast music. One was loud and slow music. Uh, the third was quiet and fast. The fourth was quiet and slow. And the fifth, of course, was no music at all. Uh, they had them run 10 minutes on a treadmill. And generally speaking, when they played louder and faster music for the people on the treadmill, the people on the treadmill went harder and they went faster. Um, so no real big surprises there. Um, I do think, you know, in, in reflecting on the, the meaning of music and what all this can mean for you, um, the folks at Runners Connect were writing about this. And... and um, the, the writer said that in general, music kind of helps you with stimulation. And that if you think about the findings of that 2014 Brazilian study and then the other one from 2003 um, in the International Journal of Sports Medicine, that idea of it's sped up the beginning. Well, so it can help basically stimulate you at the start and get your, help you get your game face on. And so maybe listening to it before a race would be a good thing. Um, however, like I said, the folks at, at Runners Connect point out that, that that's probably more useful in a lab than it actually is in a race. Because in a lab, it's such a contrived situation that maybe you need that boost. But come race day, you should probably already be feeling a little bit of boost. 
And if you listen to music before your race, it might push you into that overstimulation place um, such that you'll end up cracking under pressure or choking or something else like that. And so, so even while music might help you when you're working out, it might not help you so much when you're actually getting ready to toe the line for race. It might make you over nervous and might key you up too much. Um, and that's certainly something you want to be aware of as well. Now, I can't talk about music here without mentioning one last little piece on it here. Number one, be safe when you listen to headphones. Um, don't go running through a dark area um, with your headphones so loud that you can't tell what's around you. Um, don't run with the traffic with earphones on. That's just stunningly bad thing to do. Um, you should never ride a bike with earphones on, really, um, because because you need to be aware of your surroundings when, when, when you're cycling here. So, so that's one thing I do definitely want to say about music. The other thing I will say about music as well, I do listen to music, as I said, when I'm on the trainer, when I'm, when I'm on the bike. I've never listened to music when I run. I still, to this day, don't listen to music when I run, be it on a treadmill or outside. Um, for me, recalling again, one of the studies we talked about last week, um, I... I've always felt that one of the real advantages of running is having that space, that carved out time in your day when you can simply go into your own head and you can reflect on things and you can solve stuff and you can you can mold life's bigger problems. Um, and if you're listening to music, you're not going to be able to do that. Um, so hopefully I'm not saying that to any of you as you're listening to this podcast while you're running, but you know, uh, I apologize for that if I do. Thanks for listening. Um, but, uh, but, but something certainly to keep in mind. long podcast this week thank you for joining us here at the most pleasant exhaustion podcast brought to you by itl coaching and performance uh don't forget to follow us online check us out on twitter at pleasant podcast um at uh the blog at most pleasant exhaustion.blogspot.com maybe i'll put up that cyclist legs on there so you can check out that veininess um, and then on facebook.com slash pleasant podcast uh, follow ITL coaching and performance at itlcoaching.com on twitter at itlcoaching and at facebook.com slash itlcoaching and performance finally don't forget my wife the travel planner she can do it all kctravelplanner at gmail.com that's k-a-c-i-e travelplanner at gmail.com um, she has booked my Chicago travel and even got me a ticket to Hamilton the day before the race. I'm excited about that. Uh, you can also find her at Facebook, facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner MEV. Thanks for listening.